0: So, hello everyone. Welcome to podcast number twelve.
1: So, I'm really excited that tonight we have Janice joining us. So, Janice and I have known each other for a number of years now, um, working, starting to work initially on the reducing pre-registration attrition and improving retention project also known as repairs that seems like a long time ago now and obviously as academics we've often bumped into each other at conferences and usually gravitated towards each other um, as we're both hugely passionate about our professions and radiography as a whole and academia so janice is a diagnostic radiographer by background qualifying in 2001 from the university of wales and janice has had an amazing and varied career so anyone who knows her i am sure that she is a true inspiration to anyone within the radiography world. So Janice, would you like to formally introduce yourself?
2: So hi, hi everyone. Thank you, Joe, for that really kind introduction and for that trip down memory lane as well. And I thought it was rather fitting that you mentioned repair because of course you've had your Rad Talk podcast with Mandy and um, Nicky um, on, um, on repair. And I encourage people to go back and listen to it because I have listened to it and it was really great to hear. Um, so, uh, yes, um, Joe might have given away my age there, <laughs> I am qualified 20 years, but I'll I, I just walk you through a little bit of my career, because as Joe said, it's, a, it's, um, it's not unusual, but there's been some interesting points in it, so I'll, I'll walk you through that. So, um, this summer I am qualified 20 years, and I'm extremely proud to have a, a varied career as a diagnostic radiographer, it's all I ever wanted to do when I was in school, and I tell people that all the time. Um, I grew up in rural Tipperary, and like many Irish people, I've actually come to the UK to train, and in my case, that was Cardiff, and I started the course two weeks after my 18th birthday, so it was quite a big step to to leave my country and then come here. Um, So I trained in Cardiff, I did all my placements in Cardiff, and my first post happened to be in the hospital I trained at, at the University Hospital of Wales, and it was a really fantastic grounding, lots of on-call and out-of-hours work, and a really great social life. And a number of my uni friends stayed so eight of us who trained together in a cohort of 24 and yes cohorts used to be that small um, and we stayed together and we worked together we just had a fantastic social life basically um and it was during there that i um gained my senior too so again i'm giving away my age because this is pre-agenda for change times um but also on a more serious note, a really um, important life event happened. So in my first year of qualifying, my mum passed away from cancer and um, she was just with people. And that was a really, I'd gone from being a really techie, techie radiographer. I love physics and I love all the technical side. But seeing my mum go through that journey really made me consider about that really fine balance that we radiographers have between technology and patient care. So it was a really defining moment in my career. So I left that amazing job to pursue my interest in MRI scanning. As I said, I love physics. And I joined a private imaging company on their mobile scanner fleet. So there is not a hospital car park in the southwest of England I have not visited, bar Swindon, interestingly. But I've been to them all. And um, whenever we visit, we go on holidays um, in our camper van. And I say to my husband, he'll, he'll say, have you been here? Yes, to the hospital. But I know nothing about the actual area. But I've been to the hospital. And I'm fortunate to get the opportunity to train in MRI, but I also um, continued with my CT skills. Um, and at that time, it was quite unusual to be trained in both. I think it's more common now. So I was really proud of the fact that I was able to try, train to quite a high standard. So after four years of the road on the road, um, I joined the central clinical governance team, and I took up the post of national education and development man- uh, manager. And at the company I worked at, there was this incredible link between if we train our workforce. And that's all levels of workforce correctly. We can really improve patient care. And it was a really strong ethos. And there's two major pieces of work I was involved with. And again, it just is my passion with training um, shine through. So the first was um, I led the design of one of the first ever MRI graduate training programs. Um, And of course, there's quite a few of those around now. And my dissertation was um, how could we get students into the independent sector as a placement provider? And um, I often reflect about that 10 years ago. So that was my master's thesis. Um, Because to get buy-in was really, really hard. And I was really discouraged from publishing at the time because everyone said the idea was so radical. And I'm kind of reflected. Joe's looking at me as, (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean that's radical? But it was 10 years ago to put students in the independent sector. So um, that work was never published and yet you can't imagine running a course now without independent sector placements. So I'm a real champion of radiographers publishing the work because of that. So a lesson learned, but um, and it's it's great to see. So that was that's my twenties, and then my thirties is mostly ac- academia, um, and I've had every possible contract. I've had fixed term, permanent, associate, lecturer, part time, full time. I've I've done them all. Um, I started as a senior lecturer in diagnostic imaging, teaching on the therapeutic radiography program as well at UWE Bristol. Um, but I also um my time at the university, I've been an associate head of department for CPD, associate head of department for radiography and CPD, um, an academic director for student journey, and then deputy head of department. Um, and at the time, that department had eight disciplines um, and 14 programs of study. So it was quite a big department. I learned lots. And there's two key projects that I was involved again in that time. So um, I led the development of the MSc Physician Associate Studies program at UE Bristol. And as part of that, I had this amazing opportunity to travel to America, to Tennessee, and learn lots about that profession. And when I was there, physician associates is really well understood in in the U.S. Um, it's been around a long time, but it was quite a new. It's still a new profession in the in the UK. And yeah, here I was, in in the UK. I would argue diagnostic radiography. Most people. Once you tell them that you take x-rays, they, they know what it is. Um I was with a load of Americans who didn't really understand how I needed a degree or even a master's to do my, my role. So it was a really interesting space where they were really confident with what a physician associate was, and we probably weren't confident in our country. And there I was as a radiographer going, Yes, I've got a master's. And they're like, What in imaging? Yes, I have. <laughs> so it was just really, really good learning. And then the um other project was the installation of the CT scanner at UE Bristol, and um it's the Uh, It was quite a big project because we had to find a scanner that the diagnostic team and the therapeutic radiography team would be happy with. So there's lots of discussions about (laughs) whiteboards, black tables and laser lights and everything. So um, just as I was leaving, that scanner arrived um, because uh, with the pandemic, um, there was a delay in delivery, so it arrived. So just, just to finish off on this one, Jo, jo and I thinking, is she going to stop? I am. <laughs> 20 years I, I, love I love it. I love it. So I am an AVID badge collector. So as long as as well as my master's, I have a PG Start Teaching and Learning in higher education, which a lot of academics do have. It's a requirement now. And I have earned my senior fellowship with the Higher Education um, Academy. And in my spare time, I'm doing a part time doctorate as well. So um,
1: Yes, so that's it. I'll start now. I'll stop. Oh, no, but it does really show your career progression. And I think it's really important for people listening to kind of see how you got to where you currently are. So what are you doing now then, Janice? Now that you've kind of told us all about your amazing career pathway, what is your current title and what is it that you're currently doing? So my current uh, post um, is Clinical Fellow to the Chief Allied
2: Health Professions Officer for England. And um, I had a gentle reminder before the podcast to, to say that I am the first radiographer diagnostic or therapeutic to hold that post. And um, I think it's really important that I kind of say that because I was reflecting for this podcast why why hadn't there been a radiographer before? why why there's no role models Where are these role models in these fellowships? where are they and um, so I, I think if I explain about a little bit about my doctorate work and how that links in and why that, on this occasion i applied so i have a, a motto I, I like to look for work where um i can add value but equally i can learn so this role just fitted the bill and um, the clinical fellowship itself is it's a fixed term or a succumbent opportunity um, allowing an allied health professional from any of the 14 professions, and um, they get to work with the national team they learn new skills build relationships you get to work with the arm lens body so you really understand what happens at that national level and also you get to work on a niche project. So I knew that the niche project would be rewriting AHPs into action. So the next strategy for AHPs in England. Um, and um, the original AHPs Interaction used a crowdsource. And at the time, it was the biggest crowdsourced health strategy in Northern Europe. It was huge. And I was sat in a, in a conference room, and uh, Suzanne Rastricht, the uh, Chief Allied Health Profession Officer, Dr. Joanne Fillingham, who is the Deputy Chief AHP officer. And I, I work with Joanne. Joanne was the original clinical fellow who wrote that strategy. And Pete Tommond were presenting, and Dr. Pete Tommond owns the company, the crowdsourcing company, Clever Together. And I had a Eureka moment. So they were telling us all about crowdsourcing. And I had I had a moment where I thought, I wonder if anyone has crowdsourced a healthcare curriculum. Mm. Um, And so their work, their original work has really inspired my doctor work because that's what I do. I've crowdsourced a health professions, specifically a diagnostic radiography degree. So when I heard that they were rewriting the strategy and it was likely a crowdsource, I thought, right, I can add value to this. I've done the work locally with patients in public. I know I'm a big fan of crowdsourcing, but I've got a critical eye. So I also know maybe where it needed some improvements to it. And I also thought, hold on a second. You're a diagnostic radiographer. You work with technology all the time. And this is a project that's got an emerging technology that they're using. So I thought, right, I can add value and I can learn. So, so I applied for it. Um, and it's really interesting crowdsourcing because even though it's been used in business and social policy for about 15 years, it's still quite new. And a top tip, you when you're doing your doctorate, it's great doing something novel, but don't do something that's so novel there's no literature published on it. <laughs> <I don't laughs> I think we tell all our students that and then I went and uh, did something different <laughs> so yeah so I thought I genuinely I applied I thought I don't I'm not a typical clinical fellow I've not been through the NHS kind of systems as has previous fellows but I thought you know what I've got a little bit of a quirky career background and um, I, I use the tool and I can add value to this project but there's also a lot for me to learn so um, I'm very open about this it's been 16 years since I last worked for the NHS and um, but I've always worked with NHS patients. So this is really fascinating. All of my career, at no point have I not worked with NHS patients. It's just I've not been employed by the NHS. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, that, that's my fellowship. And, and I believe I believe you might have
1: been on a fellowship recently. <laughs> I may <laughs> indeed have been on a fellowship. So, yeah, obviously I've just finished the um, National Macmillan Therapeutic Radiography Clinical Fellow. So I sat on the chief medical officer's team with Macmillan. Um, And very similar to to you, Janice, Um, it was very much that kind of, oh, I've seen this. I know I have the skills. You know, it was initially advertised as a role to be able to promote the profession. And I actually got sent the advert by about eight or nine people. And I think that kind of sparked a bit of confidence in me to think, actually, I can do this. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of lots of people who go for clinical fellowships and things like that. But actually it can be daunting going outside of your comfort zone um, and I de- did and probably still do suffer with imposter syndrome but I definitely recognize now the skills knowledge um, that I have as a therapeutic radiographer and as an academic going into a national sphere looking at more strategic um, implementation so it, it has been hugely beneficial and I would really strongly encourage people to think about going for opportunities like this and you know you never know where it's going to take you or lead you and i think it is important for people to know where to look so twitter is amazing to be able to share some of these um opportunities thinking about nhs jobs and health education england I think, as you said, you know, the different types of contracts that you've held is really important to consider because lots of these opportunities are offered as secondments or fixed term. And you do need managerial support prior to applying. You do need to be able to think about, okay, once I finish that fixed term, if I don't go on to do something else or have another job, Can I take a career break, you know, financially, can you afford to do it? So there are definitely logistical issues, I think, with doing some of these roles. But I think having the confidence to go for it and putting your absolute heart and soul into it, I think, will be of benefit in the long run. Um, And I definitely know from people who have kind of gone into those roles and and taken the risk, it it has been beneficial. And I certainly know that it's given me more aspiration to go outside of just academia. and hopefully, like you said, Janice, you know, thinking about patients and the impact that we could potentially make to patients, but through other people or through the projects that we hold. So Janice, I, I wonder if I could ask you something. Um, I know on Twitter, you've been really open about the fact that you're obviously doing your doctorate at the moment. And you have mentioned previously about having dyslexia. I just wondered, you know, how have you found it doing a doctorate and having dyslexia and what support might you offer to other people who are in a similar situation so
2: i'm just really glad that we we've just got the space to discuss this a little bit because you know as we know a lot of radiography students and radiographers we seem to we attract because we're so visual and practical we track people with dyslexia. And so I just think, firstly, it's really important to state that no two people with dyslexia have the same profile. So I'm going to speak about my lived experience, but I don't really want to speak for everyone with dyslexia because we we quite often have a profile. But I just also want to say the good news is that according to the World Economic Forum, there's 10 key skills the future workforce needs and us dyslexics have nearly all of them. Okay, (laughs) But even a more interesting fact is these 10 skills that the future workforce needs Allied health professionals have most of them as well. Perfect. So if you were, if you are a dyslexic allied health professional or a dyslexic radiographer, world's your oyster, really? <laughs> 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 so just to hold tight to that, okay? Because I think that's really important. So yeah. the doctor, yeah. Who in the right mind, when they've got a disability with the written word, would write eighty thousand word uh, thesis? I, I really can't think of anyone. Oh, <laughs> that would be me. And. Um, so that's the challenge for me. And um, unlike other bits of coursework where I might have had a reasonable adjustment or things at the end of the day, it's very traditional doctorates you have to write. So I, I, if it's okay, I'd like to give some advice to any listeners who've got dyslexia or working with people with, with dyslexia. So my first piece of advice is it's really hard and it can be really emotive, but if you don't disclose, you're not going to be able to access any support at all. And I, I know how, hard. I still, I remember declaring in a class early in my doctorate in front of 30 people I was dyslexic and feeling just all these emotions afterwards because they were strangers to me and they didn't really know me and and I want to use a practical a really good example of this is applying for your first post okay so a lot of organizations have a tick box it's called the uh, guarantee the two tick guarantee and if you're disabled as a lot and you tick that box and declare your disability at that point. as long as you meet the essential criteria they have to call you to interview because if you think about it the only way you get assessed is a written document yeah well if you're dyslexic, I, I, I've not gone for jobs because it's a written document it's the only assessment that gets me through the first gateway yeah. now I hate the box I actually hate it I hate having to tick it but I also know it's probably got me into a few interviews and once I'm at that interview table I can work my magic yeah um, and we can see beyond that written word so so you know I've seen people you know on openly on twitter say oh i've just you know the spelling in this application form and i'm thinking well oh, just think of the people who might have dyslexia you know and the things like that so my top tip is if you've got use two ticks just use it just click it okay and that's for anyone with a disability um the other thing i'm really vocal about on, on um twitter is disability student allowance yeah it's a pain to apply for once you have it you'll you'll get funding for tutoring hours study skills hours and you also get funding for various things so many years ago I would have had a laptop I have all my software that I need etc but the study skills hours are really interesting for me because I've accessed DSA from my master's teaching qualification and doctorate, and I've been really hit and miss and I keep thinking what new study skill could they possibly teach me and every time I learn something new about how I manage my dyslexia so for me I've um, like many dyslexics I've got cognitive load issue so my brain just fills up really quickly and then to move stuff from short term to long term memory, I just have to have some coping strategies to do that. Um so so that's another tip. So I, I think what people looking in don't realise is the amount of admin time. So yeah. that's why I've you know, been really good. I study skills this year, I've been amazing. I've got an amazing tutor. Um, and um other brands are available, but I do want to give a shout out to Diverse Learners and Kerry Pace, who runs that organization because probably the best uh, they're they specific for healthcare students there are other available uh, providers but um, I've got into really good rhythm but the admin is actually quite a lot so people don't see that um, it's like a, a burden that people don't see but I'd recommend that you you do that and I think the other thing is I've lived uh, so out of my 20 qualified years, I spent about uh, 14 of those studying. <laughs> like when you time because I've always done things part-time. You were glutton for punishment, <laughs> And um, I've four, four different HEIs now, with my degree as well included. And you know, some of them are really good at some things, and they're not so good. But at the end of the day, if I don't advocate for myself, then so you you will learn as you put when you get older. <laughs> it's like, but to any new students who are really new to this it's really hard advocating, but you do. Um, and you know, the universities are not perfect, but I think you need to also take ownership of your learning and responsibility. So th- there's a little bit of a two-way street and I would really urge students to think about what that two-way street looks like. Cause sometimes you can get a bit one way, like uni won't do this for me or, but you you have to, uh, to advocate for yourself. And I have to say universities have come a long way since this is my, this is my day, <laughs> they've come a long way. And then the final thing is really, how we've changed our perception of dyslexia so i found out when i was in uni i was 19 so second year i found out and i thought okay great that that's fab we know what's what what might be the issue here um but you didn't tell anyone at the time because we didn't have a lot of research in our profession i used to always get the question how do you tell how do you know left and right janice you know you're, you're, you're a real hazard to the profession and um, so i've got lots of coping things about remembering left and right and things Um. But I think about 2006, 2007, a lot of papers were published and Fred Murphy and Salford had a corpse grant and he published quite a lot. And then suddenly the, it just became, oh, actually, we, we as a profession have a lot of dyslexics, a lot of them. Yeah. So I, I've probably been in an era where people weren't sure what a dyslexic radiographer looks like. And now we know that they make fab radiographers. they got great visuals and... Um, When I'm in CT scanning I don't know how to describe this but I can see the picture in 3D it's really hard to explain but it's just a visual thing that I have Um, and it's probably why I'm attracted to doing the cross-sectional imaging yeah so yeah so so there's a lot there's there's lots there and 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 just as I said at the beginning everybody's an individual so just because my
1: profile looks like x it's not going to be the same as someone else's profile as well and do you think it's important then to actually learn a bit more about your disability and and kind of be able to look at it maybe more so that you understand it so that you can then inform others I don't I don't know how do you feel about that like how did you find out about how you learn
2: so there's a bit about your study skills when you're a student I think as I said the published literature that's been in radiography in kind of like the mid noughties um see Feels very strange saying the mid-norties, doesn't it? That that paperwork was really eye-opening because it it basically said, actually, they're really great. And I also think I've got superpowers. So I I just, I've convinced myself that I'm really special. No, no, I've convinced myself. (laughs) I have got, I I, quite often I'll be in a meeting and someone go, wow, that's a really lateral way of looking at it. And I think that's partly being a radiographer before we go any further, because I think that's our skill mix anyway. But people are like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. The other thing I struggle with is, I'll be in a meeting and I'll I'll be five steps ahead of the person who spoke and I'll say something and then I think, oh, I better go back and walk through my think thought process. I think quite, uh, quite quickly, speak yeah. quickly, think quickly. But I think jo, that's a really fair point. Whatever your disability is, there is a little bit of ownership of understanding what it means for you personally. And then of course, then when you do disclose, you can work really constructively with clinical tutors or um, lecturers, et cetera, to help be the best that you can with it.
1: yeah. Yeah. I de- I've definitely experienced it um, being an academic and seeing more students coming through and actually myself picking up students who've been through the whole education system and have never never had it picked up that potentially they could have dyslexia and to go for kind of testing with the university and we definitely have a lot more students now who have learning contracts I think sometimes one of the issues that that i've come across being in academia is we can put lots of things in place throughout the academic side of things but it's then translating it to what happens in clinical and i think that's something that we could definitely do more of to kind of take the lid off and expose things that don't work for people with disability in practice and how we could make reasonable adjustments um and I I know for a fact that some students get loads of support at uni, maybe don't get so much in the clinical environment because they feel that they are learning and should adapt to whatever situation they're in rather than maybe asking for help and support or getting some changes. So it'd be great to kind of almost push, push the boundaries of that, really. And wouldn't it be amazing? I was thinking about it in preparation for this podcast and thinking, you know, if I had a disability you know, it would be great to have that taken into consideration around all of the assessments that we do. You know, how amazing would it be if HCPC said, right, we're going to do your CPD audit. You can submit that in whatever way you find most appropriate for you and your knowledge and skills, you know, as long as you can evidence your CPD. I
2: Very quickly, as an academic, I've got a really good example. So the Senior Higher Education um, Academy Fellowship, that was on my PDR, it became a joke. It was on my PDR for five years, it rolled over. And I, I'd hear of other people getting them and i think, I'm sure I've done enough to get it. So I approached UWE Bristol and I just wanted a big shout out for this. And I said to them, surely, I, I, you know, 6,000 words when you're writing a thesis as well and you're just trying to do your day job. I said, is there any other route? And they said, yeah, there's, there's a dialogical route. And they said, we haven't done it before. Would you be happy to be the first person to do it with us? So I have achieved my SFHEA through a dialogical route, um, using a little bit of pebble pad. And um, and it actually went really, really well. And they said, because it went so well, that it, it'll be an offer now to other people like myself. But I had to go and do my homework on that and approach them. It wasn't openly there. But I think that's a really great example. Unfortunately, with the doctorate, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that, that's a really great, and I want, I want to share examples like that, because I think that's really, um, and hats off to the academic practice team at ue for you know that that probably created them extra work to do it that way but they yeah. did and they did it with me and um, and now it's not on my pdr anymore
0: <laughs> but, i mean that's also you taking kind of ownership as you said of it and then sometimes if other people don't understand it that's their way if you kind of guide them that actually this is my problem this is how it works they kind of have to take the leap of faith in a way and i think what you said joe that unis are very good now um, for kind of helping support students but I think when it comes into the workplace because there's so many different dynamics and especially in the NHS so many different personalities to work with and I think we whether it's diagnostic or therapeutic yes we're very good attention to detail patient focus and stuff but actually getting someone new in I suppose especially at the moment with the pandemic um, you know all the people who've had to start of you know maybe finishing their final placement a bit later or having it shortened and then coming into practice that's like a whole another level of support. I suppose that everyone's trying to having almost having to try and figure out on the spot isn't it really but I don't know if that's some of your experience Joe, with some of the students that you've worked with recently.
1: Yeah I think um, I think we often find that dependent on what the disability is and what the needs are we can try and adjust as much as we possibly can do but sometimes it is around confidence and making sure that they feel happy and supported it's not about competency it's just about them being able to utilize the skills that they have in maybe a different way and exactly like Janice has said it it is thinking outside of the box taking ownership for how you can make changes or adapt Um, and just being open and honest I think now that we are much better at being inclusive you know cultures are changing it's so important that we embrace it and I know it's easier for me to say because I haven't got a disability how would I feel if I did have to disclose that but I think if we're able to embrace people disclosing things where we can make changes and make work better for people make their employment happier, a happier place to be um, then I think it's definitely something that we should do and move towards and you know if that if there are issues we need to we need to expose them and make changes.
0: Yeah exactly and I think Janice as you said being open about this and she keep going on about how long you've been working um, in the mid noughties I was only three years old so just a little bit in. <laughs> <Stop naming. laughs> um, but I think where you've got to with your kind of role with I'm not going to try and say it out loud but (laughs) C-A-P-H-O working with Suzanne and working with that kind of office and that strategic level so knowing I'm sure some of your colleagues may know that if you do struggle with dyslexia saying again I'm the first job to do this and I've got dyslexia or vice versa but actually students other people will say well actually no that means I can do something like that whether it's disability Um, I think yeah it's quite inspiring and it's amazing that you are in that role. And I think Joe, you and Hazel getting into that kind of strategic role, working with McMillan and stuff and what it's leading on to, I think is kind of amazing really. Um, and it, it's I think as we said earlier before we were chatting that he can almost only count on our hands kind of the chief kind of AHP roles within trust at the moment who are therapeutic radiographer or diagnostic radiographer backgrounds. Um, but hopefully this is the sort of thing that now in the future we can start to yeah, diversify into these roles um but yeah.
1: absolutely I think it's role modeling isn't it we need more people out there so keep an eye on the adverts and if you need help and support there's loads of people out there like I know I've messaged Janice on Twitter and gone Janice I'm thinking of going for this role what do you think and it is we have such an amazing community out there don't all message Janice she'll go mad but <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it is really inspiring when you know people have had roles like this us, you know I'm more than happy to help support people going for additional secondments and fellowships that maybe they 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 are nervous about going for because I think the more people we have in these roles um the better we will get in terms of recognition of our of our professions so absolutely but thank you thank you as well Janice so much for actually being really open because I can imagine it is an emotive subject and not everyone would like to discuss it. So thank you.
2: Yeah,
1: that, that's fine. And just because just I, I love a stat, as we all know, and
2: um, I think what's interesting is the WDES, which is the disability stats for NHS. And I had a look and eight Cs, eight Ds and nines, you've got less chance of having one if you're a disability. So just interesting in the tying up with this conversation, again, where are our, I don't call them role models, I call them real models. Where are all those real models, aren't they? So, yeah, so that was an interesting read for me last week, actually, about, um, um, you know, there's a lot of characteristics, a lot of different ones, isn't there, where those higher grades, they're not diverse at all. So, so, yeah, so I, I'm really proud. I'm really proud to be in the space that I am, but I am a real model, not a
1: role model. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm going to adopt that. That'll be it now, Janice. I'll steal that.
0: <laughs> oh, She's going to tell everyone that when she gives me your email address to
1: email
0: you. <laughs> Um, but no, I suppose, Dennis, with uh, the Clinical Fellowship and your part-time doctorate, um, what's next for you at the minute?
2: So um, so my short-term times, they're very clear. Um, so basically, I have two things to land in the spring. I have the National AHP Strategy and a doctorate. So my Notice for Intention for Commitment has gone in recently. So no biggie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Um, I you know what I, I this fellowship has just been absolutely amazing. I don't want it to end but I'm prepping myself because they always do end and I am sure you've been in this space where you just don't want it to end but it will do so so I need to get ready. So um and it was interesting Joe, because you said this earlier about going so I'm on a fixed term and I don't have a next step. So um what I I because I got a little bit of a tiny script here I've written I'll be looking for a new role in April 2020. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, while I'm on this so I you no, know, I am genuinely I'll be keen I, I've made that decision if I don't get a role straight away it's not the end of the world so again Joe, it was all that decision making about um but if anyone has a job where I can add value <laughs> but also learn I am um, and and as you've heard you have heard my whole CV I have a really eclectic mix of skills so I can probably land in a couple of places so so who knows who knows Janice, next year has where this, I land?
1: has this been a way for you to verbalize your CV and get a job <laughs>
2: no no just just harnessing the opportunity but I suppose the other thing I'd like to just use an example of my career so my career's not been playing sailing I had a um, I, I had a fixed term and I had no job for a while and I had to um, I went back I went back to what we do and I did general x-raying and I've been and um, CT scanning so my CT scanning skills were fine but I just hadn't done general x-raying for a while and I went and worked at a local hospital and I can tell you we are so blessed that we are radiographers because we have this amazing skill set. So no matter what, you're never out of a job, are you? Um, and I, trust me, I was a bit nervous about doing general X-ray because even though I I CT and MRI not a problem, can do it with my eyes closed. I just hadn't I hadn't taken a hand X-ray a wrist X-ray for a while. It is like riding a bike. It really is. So having done that before, if that's you know next April, if that's what I end up doing, that's what I end up doing. And I think I feel so grateful that I have this training. Mm-hmm. And it's so versatile, mm-hmm. isn't it? Absolutely. And with the Richards report and everything, imaging is mission critical at the moment, isn't it? So if nothing else, I'll never be out of a job, ever, ever. So um, so I just wanted as well, just that kind of uplifting note of how lucky we are yeah. <laughs> to be. be we might think it sometimes, but it is an amazing skill and degree to do, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. we're never going to be out of jobs, are we? We're, Never, I've never had that issue in all of my career. So, so yes. Yeah, so ask me next summer where I am, and uh, hopefully someone's listened and, and clocked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh no, yeah. thank you. Janice had a very quick question. Uh, if you feel comfortable, you said that you yeah. get your left and your right mixed up. What what do you use to? Yeah, is
2: so, hold up your left hand, squeeze your four fingers together, and you stick your thumb out. It's the shape of an L. No, oh, I love uh...
0: it.
2: So you'll see me behind patients doing a PHS. No, seriously, going, right, yeah. fine. And then I, I'm in the old days when we had clip markers, because, again, people don't have this. So people, some people are listening going, whoa, she's been around a while. Um, but um, actually, my, my, just very quickly, I was reminded today that I, worked at, I trained at the first hospital to have a PAC system, probably the first in the UK. So even though I've been trained a long time, we had really cutting edge. People are thinking, what, you, you, you used film? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, um, I, I'm the first cohort of radiographers who trained and had no film experience. Um, and when I did my senior two assimilation, as they used to call it, I had to go to hospital to learn how to use film at the time. So anyway, but yeah, that's left. So if you ever see me behind doing a PHS x-ray, you'll see me. <laughs> <ultimately>. <laughs> oh, thank
0: yeah. you. No, I was just <laughs> curious. <laughs> I'm never gonna around be
2: around now looking at patients, aren't you going, I just left. I've also got a bump. I've got a writing bump on my right hand. So you'll see me stroking my bump on my right hand. It's just a trigger to remind myself that's my right side. There we are.
0: Love it. Love it. Um well again, thank you very much for being on, Dennis. It's been amazing. Very interesting what you've got into and very inspiring, I would say. Um and Joe, it's nice to have you on for the first podcast together.
2: Thank Um, you.
0: I think I didn't have to get the traffic lights out to get you to stop talking, so it's okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, Naman, I think you've forgotten to tell everyone how we know each other. So, so this makes That's you true. even older. Go on, <laughs> just tell the audience about because this now makes me feel really. Sick.
0: So, Janice, we we first met during my uh, my masters to get into my pre-Reg masters. So I think that's the same pre-reg masters that you said earlier that you're going to do to get up to therapy <laughs> if you don't get a job next summer. So, <laughs> so Yeah, that's where we met. Um, and I think just discussing anything research related. It's funny that you said the similar comment earlier, make sure you try and publish everything and anything. I have taken that advice on and it, it is scary. The first time doing it, so my first solo publish was last summer, mid kind of COVID. And that was quite scary and it, it was, it's an amazing experience it's weird to think that that was over a year ago um but it kind of just um, I,
2: I think someone's being a little bit coy here haven't you caught something that's just won a like a huge award
0: um so well oh. a, one of the authors on yeah. so there's Theo um he's a diagnostic rad working at Bournemouth University um asked me to collaborate on a Covid kind of related paper just so just about practice so diagnostic and for me to help with the kind of the therapeutic side a bit um so yeah it's amazing um it won or oh, i can't remember that but radiography the editor's choice award i think yeah um, for
2: the year well done
0: which is amazing so yeah um huge congratulations to everyone who was on it um it's kind of a worldwide collaboration so again diversifying roles um i think as you said both of you will never be out of a job because there's always something we can get into and again t- for me which is quite nice is i've never met theo but um yeah just kind of met through twitter and through um Med-Rad journal club and then from there it's gone on and then you collaborate and that's kind of how we work synergistically i suppose across the world don't we as a profession uh, in radiography therapeutic and diagnostic so it's nice um yeah thanks for asking <laughs> um but i think that's a good place to end before i get too embarrassed um thank you very much dennis for being on joe thank you again Um, Thanks to everyone for listening for this one. Um, It's been really nice. And um, yeah, hopefully catch you soon for another episode um, in the near future. Thank you.
2: Thanks. Thank you, bye.